calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Podiobooks.com, in association with pjvalentine.net and writersexchange.com, presents Weaver's Web, written and read by Philippa Valentine. Emerging like an explosion from the chambers below, Connor could only barely keep pace with Ashime. Dust flew off her in streamers as she drew her sword and hammered down the corridor towards the gardens. All of the clanspeople who could not fight were there, the old, the young and the vulnerable. Already their cries reached them. People passed by, clutching children, faces set in masks of fear and disbelief. The tide washed over and around them with the peculiar odour of terrified humans. They almost ran straight into Mirak and Solistra. The warrior was practically holding the mother up. All the blood seemed to have drained from her, and her eyes were rolled back in her head while it lolled against Merrick's shoulder. Sweet lady, she gasped. Get me there, Merrick. The anger. Eshime took the lead. The weaver's waiting for something. Do you feel it, Merrick? He nodded shortly. The call of the Alpha. Solistra is all that's holding me together. Roso chose that moment to appear. Drawing his sword, he paced a stride for stride with Eshime. Seems like we're always running towards trouble, you and I. It's a gift, she said. They let the clansmen flee. Ashima urged them all to retreat to the outer ward. Leaf, her younger cousin, was slumped against a wall as they drew down on the entrance to the garden. His eyes were crazed and unseeing, but when he caught sight of Ashima, he rushed up to her. Ash, he practically gibbered. Grandfather, those things! Leaf, get these people back to the outer ward. Leaf? Do you hear me? It's up to you. With a self-conscious tug of his torn vest, the young clansman began to usher the fleeing back up the corridor. Ashime shot him a tight smile of reassurance. Rosa gave Connor a curt nod, and he leaned around the corner of the doorway to the gardens. Connor at the opposite side braced himself and did the same. The gentle garden's serenity had been shattered by the siren call of the Alpha Weaver. Blood obeyed the ancient dictates of its nature, older and subtler than the honour of Kithilkin. The ground writhed with those people whose weaver blood, even if they'd never known it, now determined their allegiance. Flesh, bone, muscle, all trembled and obeyed the might of the Alpha. Some were failing and falling apart as they watched, with not quite enough will to hold form together. They were the least of the problems. 
Many were on their feet, skin hot from the transformation, swords given to a new master. Some of the people remaining untouched had obviously not believed what was happening among them. Still bodies attested to fathers who had cut down children, friends to friends and lovers to lovers. None were spared betrayal. About fifty of these new weavers were as yet operational, and circling a group of those untouched. Animal cunning had helped the weavers cut this little band off from the exits. Connor recognised the tall figure standing foremost before the weavers. Allegre, Lord of the Deep, seemed beset from within as well as externally. His face twisted and writhed from the alpha call, but by a supreme effort of will he remained in control. Connor glanced across at Ashime. She had inched up closer to Rosa on the far side of the wall. She surprised him, though, by not rushing straight in. Celestra, she hissed, leaning across to get the pale mother's attention. We need you. We need some way of getting these people out. Celestra collapsed against Mirak as she was, nodded in exhaustion. There is another over there, Rosa pointed. Somehow the weavers had missed a small, dark-haired, very young mother. She was bleeding from a head wound and was obviously frightened. Get me to her, Celestra whispered. Together, maybe we can do something. Do you need any help? Connor asked Merrick. The dark warrior wrapped his arm protectively against Celestra. No, we'll manage. Right then, as she may strap her shield to her arm. Let's give the mothers some distraction. Any time wasted now would only mean more weavers. Connor pumped his legs hard to keep pace with Ashimo. Was it only his imagination, or were the trails of silver-white light about her? He drew shoulder to shoulder with her. She plunged her sword clean through the warped form of a weaver, ignoring the colour of the lace it wore. Dunmere. Connor had a brief glimpse of the length of steel from the other side, and then he was in the melee. A serrated claw sliced at his face. Turning aside, he felt its passing on his skin. He thundered a blow to the creature's neck. The human eyes seemed to plead. While he fought, he was aware of Ashime at his left. There almost seemed to be a heat emanating from her, and what he did manage to see frightened him. She was first to break through the press of weavers and reach her grandfather. Rosso and he were not far behind. A pause in the battle found them. Ashime was at Allegro's side in one stride. Blood was pooling about him, and the doughty warrior seemed only capable of holding his body together. Connor knew the signs of a terrible gut wound. Around them, new weavers were pulling themselves together. Connor? Ashime's voice snapped his head about. He caught her jerk of the head towards the young boy she'd brought down from the mountains. Connor scooped up the shaking youngster and perched him on his hip. Rosa was looking about with a vague air of concern. He wiped blood from his eyes with the back of one hand. Ash, moving now would be a good idea. Move! Ashime barked to the stunned clanspeople. Most were youngsters, and at her authoritative tone they scurried for the exit. The weavers strained towards them, but the thin threads of the mother's control held them. Just. Burdened by the child on his hip, Connor awkwardly sidled towards their only escape route. The warriors made a cautious exit out of the garden. Marik and the mothers waited until they reached the door. They made a sorry escape from the once beautiful gardens. Rosso, still unhurt, took the rearmost position. His blade and the mother's fragile control was all that stood between them and the weavers. Edging up the corridor, their enemy shuffled after them. So far, they could not draw near enough to strike. You know, Rosso said, his voice somewhat distracted. 
I didn't thank you for bringing Ash back in one piece. That's all right. Connor tried to shift the boy on his hip so that his sword wasn't impaired. She did it all herself, really. I'm sure. Rosa risked a glance back. Ashimo's hands were slick with her grandfather's blood, and they could all hear Allegra urging her to leave him. She didn't reply, knowing what would become of him if she did. Her jaw was set in that familiar fashion. Is that a sigh from Rosa? Connor was almost too distracted to decide. Things leered at him out of the corridors, but twisted aside as if stung when they got within a certain distance. The metallic odour of blood was all about them. Connor stumbled and nearly fell in a smear of Allegro's. We're nearly there, Pa. A note of desperation had crept into Ashimay's voice, but she was right. They were at the bottom of the steps that led to the causeway. The youngsters pelted up them. The warriors proceeded more cautiously. They were at the top. The wind off the sea in their faces when the young mother gave a blood-chilling scream. Connor could hear Merrick struggling with her. The scream was finally cut off. Connor spared a glance back. The dark-haired warrior was now fully carrying Solistra. The dark eyes of the other mother were staring at nothing. So their fragile protection was now even more tenuous. The weavers now threw themselves at Connor and Roso. The elder took the brunt of it. A sword slashed silver, cutting and shredding where it fell. Their feet were on the causeway now. The wind rolled about them, splashing them with sea spray and cooling their sweating brows. Both of them shoved and pushed, abandoning finesse in an effort to keep the causeway clear and buy their friends some time. Connor felt the child being lifted free and heard Ashima yelling for them to fall back. She was between them now, a dark smudge in his peripheral vision, easing both their burdens with her sword. Between swings, she gasped for them to retreat, but the grip of battle heat was heavy on Roso. He ran with tiny rivulets of blood and gore. The causeway was becoming slick with it. In the mother's name! Ashime screamed against the wind. Fall back! The mothers are going to drop the causeway. Give ground, damn you! Indeed, the rock beneath them was trembling, stone sliding against stone. Connor was loath to retreat where Roso would not. A toad-like weaver, all semblance of humanity cast off leaped from beyond its own ranks. Connor looked up, catching the impression of a scythe claws and rippling muscle. He called a warning. Rosa spun. He'd heard at moments too late. The ground underfoot was not his friend. Footing gone, his defences dropped. The weaver landed atop him. Claws and teeth found their mark. Armour could not halt such strength. Rosa's left arm was almost torn from him in a spray of flesh and blood. Connor and Ashima leapt forward. She was faster. With a truly awesome stroke, she severed the weaver's head. Its body toppled from Roso. In the face of the others, Ashime roared with a silver-white light. Time was short. Quickly, Ash! Connor cried above the shriek of rock and warrior. He had to be the voice of sanity in this madness. Ashime lifted Roso up with absolutely no effort. She leaped as rock flowed like liquid from under her feet. She landed gracefully. Connor hit the corridor behind the door with a thud a few seconds after. Lou and the other divines stood about them. He rolled and came up panting. She gently laid Rosa on the ground. So much blood, his and his enemies. His arm was a tangled mess, from which the last of his life was pumping out. The light Connor had almost seen had faded. Ashimay's hands were fluttering uselessly over the wound, while her eyes went to Jerris, standing in the shadow of the corridor. It shook its head grimly. Connor wanted to hold her and give her some comfort. Her mask of calmness was shattered. Her emotions ran hot and raw over her face. 
Rozo's hand slipped in his own blood as he grasped hers. His eyes sought her. Connor trembled in sympathy. Ashime stroked his matted hair from his forehead. Then slowly she bent and kissed the cooling lips. She leaned into the dying warrior, pillowing his head on her knee. You are my young love, Rozo. You'll be in my heart forever. He pulled her closer so that her ear was beside his lips. What he said the others did not hear, but it made Ashime's fingers tighten on his hand. When she straightened, she was clasping him close, as if willing him to live. There's nothing to forgive, Rosu. Dear heart, nothing. The blonde warrior's body gave one final shudder, blood boiling from his mouth, and then he was still. This was the final truth that Ashime couldn't hold at bay. They held the ceremony at nightfall. Allegre, Lord of the Deep, and Rozo, beloved friend of the High Chief, burned in a pyre made of destroyed furniture. Her grandfather had probably been dead as soon as they crossed the causeway, though she could never say for sure. Both were cremated so that their bodies would not aid the weavers. It was against custom, but necessary. Ashime stood, wrapped in her own aloneness, watching from the walls, with her back to the weavers outside. She'd never felt such loss, not even for her father. Rozo's blood was still under her fingernails, and his last words still lingered in her head. The flames licked up against the night sky, bright with the flesh of her loved ones. She licked her lips. The taste of him still lingered. Rozo's last breath was in her face, and when she had kissed him, she had tasted his blood too. It reminded her of their oath all those years ago. His eyes had been glazed, and distant already when he said, I always loved you, Ash. Always. Sorry I was so weak. Forgive me. What was forgiveness when she'd never given up on loving him entirely? Just lately, Ashima had come to realise that there was an infinite capacity in her heart for love. Unfortunately, it correspondingly meant that there was an infinite capacity for it to be hurt. Her finger ran thoughtfully along her scarred hand as the song of farewell from the throats of the assembled divines rose up through the smoke. Her left hand was heavy with the signet ring of Dunleary. The heir's ring, which she had worn briefly, was now Leaf's. The assembled in the bailey were a rag-tag bunch, scarred by what had happened in the inner ward. Many had escaped, but just as many hadn't. Some had the blood still somehow remaining untouched by the Alpha's call. Only a handful of Dunleary survived of those she'd rescued from the island. Now she was not only High Chief, but also Chief of Dunleary. But it was only a clan of forty or so. There was no choice. Skellig must be abandoned. The outer ward was almost indefensible without its own water supply. The battered and haunted faces of the clan chiefs would no longer oppose her. But there seemed little chance even of that, with the inner ward lost to them, there was no way of reaching the sea and the ships. Very likely the castle would become their tomb, or the weaver's plaything. Huddled in the leaf of Dunleary, Ashime met Jerris's golden eyes across the flame. She felt its calmness. It seemed so aloof and powerful, like a mountain in the eye of a storm. Raising its chin, it broke the facade by smiling at her. A smile that said all that there was between them. The chiefs of the remaining clans drew about her, cautious of her grief. "'What now, High Chief?' Damon's voice was full of deference and loss. 
none of which suited him. She sighed, not turning her head at all. Tomorrow we must break from the main gate, Lewis sent the word. We will meet at the harbour of Tyrell. That is at least a day away. Eshimay looked at him steadily. But it is the closest harbour, little least said. Eshimay nodded. Yes, but we must cross the Kuel Bridge. Damon's face, backlit by the flames, was drawn and tense. How do you plan to get us out of here, though, High Chief? As best we can. The Scarlet Wolves will form a fighting wedge, and we will put the mothers and godlings on wagons. They will provide us protection through the Great Union. Even that revelation had little effect on them. The almost mythical conjunction of divine powers had not been attempted since the dark days, but was at best a fragile hope. What shall we do for now, then? List asked, her voice quiet but calm. What else was there to do? What had people done in the times of troubles before? Go to your clans, your families, she said. Comfort them. Spend time with them. Live, at least for now. They nodded, faces shuttered with shadows and doubts. Then turning, they left. Ashimay did the same. Climbing down from the battlements, pausing only to give a word of encouragement to those remaining on watch, she went down into the bailey. The great hall was lost to them, cut off within the inner ward. So Allegra and Rosso's wake was to be held in the barracks. All those who had loved them would gather in the old-time tradition and give their spirits a fitting farewell. The room was alive with the sound of people trying desperately to forget about dawn the next day. Looking about her, Ashimay could see the whole of Dunleary and many of the Scarlet Wolves. Guston, Crinus, Connor and Merrick were over by the fire, raising tall glasses of ale to their friend. The drink had eased the lines of grief for them. Standing at the doorway, the people were suddenly silent, the pipes stilled, and Ashimay drew herself together, trying not to feel self-conscious of the lafe and the ring of her grandfather. Then she swooped down, claimed a glass from a nearby table, and raised it high. For Allegra and Roso. Let's hope they don't drink all the ale before we get to see them again. The words shattered the silence, and everybody roared about laughing. Ashimay strode over to her friends. They stood about, reminiscing together, recalling Roseau's dry wit and foolishness. By speaking of him, they sealed him in their hearts. Of course, their eyes were all wet by the time they finished. The sense of community was balm to Ashimay's shattered soul. Only a small, dark part of her whispered that perhaps it would not be long before they met Roseau and Allegra again. The pipes swirled, and before she knew it, she was being urged toward the clear space on the floor. The call! The call! everyone yelled. She smiled and held up her hands. Now what would that be? They jeered at her then, and the pipers began to play in earnest. Ashimay stripped off her greaves and other girdings of war, and hitched up her lafe until her long legs were free. The call was the ancient song of life, danced at joinings and funerals, at harvests and before battles. It was always danced by the chief or lord, and was definitely appropriate now. So she danced. The steps were graceful plantings of foot and heel that started slowly that became more and more energetic. The longer the dancer could hold out, the better was the time ahead. It was a kind of a ritual. Raising her hands, she abandoned herself to the music, letting the blood swirl within her like the pipes. The circle of spectators became blurred and indistinct. She swung wide, the song of the dance getting under her skin. She felt close to them all, and even her friend and her grandfather seemed not distant at all. The music had become a frenzied wail, primeval and powerful, 
She didn't know how much longer she could hold on to the rhythm. Then, with a powerful stamp of the drum, it ended. The crowd about her cheered madly. It had been a display like few others before, they all agreed. Jerris was waiting for her near the door, a glass of wine in each hand. She was hot and gasping just a little. She took a glass gratefully. It held the door open and she went outside. They wandered companionably over to the horse trough and sat there together, looking up at the moon. It was a chalky thumbprint against the clouds. I have a plan, Jerris whispered. Gulping down a mouthful of cool wine, Ashimay nodded. Any suggestions welcome? I go out to the weavers, to the Alpha, tomorrow. Carefully, very carefully, she set her mug down on the rim of the trough. I don't think so. Doesn't sound like much of a plan to me. There's more. But I can't share it with you, Ash. The Alpha might get it from your mind. Jerris leaned over and brushed a strand of her hair from her mouth. She looked at it blankly. Jerris slipped to mail and rose. No argument, Ash. Not this time. This is all we have. While she was still gaping, he walked away. Sitting there for a moment, she didn't even bother to contain her anger. His retreating back was set and determined. Then so was she. She strode after him. A little wind had risen and whipped dirt and dust up at her, but she barely felt it. Up the stairs she climbed. Jerris was in the room he had taken. Spartan, just the way he liked things. Armour and the weapons of battle were waiting him in the corner. Ashime didn't like the look of things. He didn't turn when she carefully shut the door behind her and went to the window. So this is how you decide things, Ashime said. It appears so. He moved determinedly about the room, preparing himself for whatever he had decided. Despite what you think, Ashime Kandra, sometimes you can't control everything. The wind roared about the towers of Skellig. Ashime leaned out of the window into their power. Jerris, her blood told her, was feeling the very same thing. She let the gale catch her tears and swirl them away from her. I won't let you go, she said, clenching her hands on the stone. We'll find another way to do this. There is none. She spun on him fiercely. I said I won't let you go. Why? His voice was mild. Something inside her broke and snapped wide open. Do you want to know my secret heart, Jerris? My gracious fear? His dazzling male form had always affected her. She looked up into those alien amber eyes, itching each line into her memory. Blood remembered blood. Something akin to rage kindled in both. Yes, I do want to know, he replied. My greatest fear is that I will never feel as loved again as I was with Geron. I fear death like everybody else, but I fear this more, this nothingness. Silly Ashime. Jerris gripped her firmly about her head, burying his fingers in her copper hair. Don't you know that you are already loved? By me. You are the only creature in this entire world that has accepted me and cared for me. I love you more than anything. He smoothed stray curls back from her face. I will go into the weaver's fire for you, because you've shown me all the best things there are in the world. That's the only regret I have tomorrow, having to leave you. <laughs> she laughed. And my only regret 
is that you've only seen the dark side of life. Don't you see, Jerris, that while life has bitter juice, it also has honey. Honey, you say? He breathed into her face. Let me show you. She kissed him then. It was as natural as breathing. The slip of sweetness that she received in return was very like that smooth potion he had healed her with all those months ago. Blood sang to blood, in fiery and powerful ways. Flesh and bone, soul and mind, opened to each other, so that each touch that was given was also felt. Jerris was inside her mind before her clothes had even been loosened. Within her head, each sense was sharp and full. Each stone in the wall she was pressed against. Each shift of her clothing against her skin made her gasp. Feelings so heightened, blood so raised, and they knew nothing else. Pleasure was given and received, and for a while, flesh had its way. I hope you've enjoyed this chapter of Weaver's Web. If you want to get your hands on an E or print edition of this novel, you can do so through my website, which is pjvalllantine.net. On this podcast, you've heard Ghost Song by Hands Upon Black Earth, which is available through magnatune.com. All other music in this podcast is supplied by T. Morris. Find out more about T at tmorris.com. Thanks for listening.